Psalm 6 is attributed to David. A lot of these first hymns or first psalms are. Um, it is. It does. Like I said, it gives an, an attribution to David at the beginning of Psalm 6 to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemathith, which they assume is a, a musical or liturgical ther- term, and is listed as a Psalm of David. Um, our goal tonight, Psalm 6, is 10 verses, but we focus heavily on verses 1, 2, 3, and also a little bit into 4, 5, 6, no, up to 5 actually, 1 through 5, so about halfway, Lord willing, tonight. Um, there's a lot, a lot of, I, th- I told Sylvia, I'm very thankful to the Lord that I'm hesitant on the first Sunday of the month because it seems like when we do our catechism sermon, it's sort of an abrupt stop of what we're doing and maybe like a reconfiguration and we got to rechange our minds. But if, if, you've been, if you've been paying attention in the Psalms and in Matthew, I'm so thankful that what we got to look at today just seemed to just fit. And again in Psalm 6, there is a connection and a fit from what we looked at this morning, considering uh, the wrath of God, uh, the anger of God towards the wicked. Uh, because at the beginning of Psalm 6, verse 1 and, and verse 1, we see that very thing. So let's read the whole psalm and then step back and look at and begin in verse 1. So Psalm 6, verse 1, we'll read all 10 verses. And then I'll uh, ask the Lord to bless our time. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me from the sake of Or save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol you will give, who will give you praise? Verse 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all You workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Father, we give thanks for uh, King David, for David, our brother. We give thanks for him. We give thanks for your gifting and giving him the ability to write such sweet words that declares such truth of who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And so help us as we read and study through Psalm 6 for Christ's sake. Amen. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So again, we've got to remember as we look at the Psalms, we're looking at poetry. Poetry. we're looking at hymns, but most from the most fundamental level, it's poetry. And so you see 
wonderful ways that David is using his words and uh, pairing things together here and pairing things together there. And that's what you see in verse 1. You see sort of this repetition of the same thought. And so you've got, at least in the way it's formatted in the ESV, in verse 1, the first line says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, comma, next line, nor discipline me in your wrath. And so David's praying, he's asking in his prayer um, that the Lord not rebuke him in, in, in the anger of the Lord, nor discipline in his wrath. Now, even in the beauty of the double, the, the repetition of these two phrases, there are pairings of two words within each phrase, right? Rebuke is like discipline. Discipline is rebuke. Anger is connected to wrath. Wrath connected to anger. So we kind of have to think about these two things split up. Rebuke and discipline on this side. Wrath and anger on this side. Um, so when we think about rebuke, and it's, that's a New Testament term. Uh, we know that, Tim, or that Paul has told Timothy that as, as a pastor, one of his responsibilities is by the preaching of the word to rebuke, rebuke and reprove uh, those who are uh, those to whom he pastors and preaches. So what's rebuke? What does it mean to be rebuked? Well, it, the Hebrew paints the picture of to be made right, but through correction. Okay, so uh, you're traveling and you're, uh, you got your navigation on and you make the wrong turn. You're no longer right and your your phone tries to reroute you to correct you. It's actually rebuking you to get back right and telling you how to do that. Take this turn. And that's that the most basic sense. That's a rebuke. You're, you're off path. You're not right. And so someone, in speaking that truth, desires to get you back on the right path through correction, typically through their words. So that, that's how we think of rebuke. And discipline, very similar. It's also a form of correction. It's interesting. The Strong's Concordance says... A form of correction literally in blows or figuratively in words. And so that that sounds like discipline. You've raised children. We don't call them blows. We call them spankings. Um, and so that, that is, that, that's a form of correction. Whether it be in the physical sense. Let's, well, you really get canceled quick for that one. Um, or in the verbal sense. In using words. But uh, the discipline gives us another thought to tag on to that. That it's not just in the sense of correction, but it's also to teach. So, you know, you're rerouted, you're put back on path. But to be disciplined is to make sure that you learn the right path. That you don't you don't veer that way again, so that might be the most. If there is if there is a you know we're splitting hairs between rebuke and discipline, but if there is the discipline is for the sake of learning, correction for the sake of learning. Now you go back to the idea of blows and words. You do this with your children, and I, I think I use this 
I use this as an illustration in our members, new members class when we talk about church discipline. So the idea is that we're always disciplining one another. We're always disciplining our children. You know, when James Michael gets a little bit bigger, he can start grabbing for things. And you might tell him, no, no, James Michael. And what are you doing? You're, you're correcting him by words in order to teach him that the stove's hot, right? But when will it might come to blows, as it were? Well, when James Michael goes to touch the stove and it's hot and you might have to slap his hand, right? That's discipline for the sake of correction and teaching to keep, to keep him away from going on that path again. So David says, rebuke me, discipline me, not in your anger, nor in your wrath. So here's what we have to understand, that the request that David makes isn't that he does not want the rebuke or the discipline of God. He does want that. And here's how I can prove that. We can look at the words of his son. Go to Proverbs 3. Uh, as, as we've been meeting, the men have been meeting on Thursdays and we've been going through the Proverbs, we tend to see some mirroring of Solomon's words to his fathers. And it seems pretty legitimate, right? He's been taught by his father. He's been disciplined. He's been rebuked by his father. And so now Solomon is then sharing that teaching and that correction with his sons. So in, in Proverbs 3, verse 11, Solomon, the son of David, says this to his son. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. So, don't despise it. Don't run from it. Don't think of it as a bad thing. And he gives the reason in verse 12. For the Lord reproves or rebukes him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, we're all, we, we're, we know that that's quoted in Hebrews 12, or I'm, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10 as well. When we went through the book of Hebrews, uh, as the writer of the Hebrews, or the writer of the letter is speaking to them. And, no, I'm sorry, it is in 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate ch- uh, you're, uh, you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so, the discipline and the rebuke of the Lord is the goodness of our Father to us as children. And so very much, David's not saying, don't rebuke me, don't discipline me, but he's actually asking him to maybe take it easy on him a little bit. Because we're going to think about these words, anger and wrath. Okay, anger, we got that one. To be, to be angry, to be enraged, to be furious. Now you remember... Who's David praying to? God. So, yeah, that's right. God gets furious. He gets angry. We, we, 
We cannot, we cannot move past. We cannot forget that. We cannot remove that from who He is. And He says, He says in the second half of that verse, uh, "Don't nor discipline me in your wrath." Now, in the KJV, it says hot displeasure. That's such a good phrase. Do not discipline me in your hot displeasure. Now, <clears throat> there is. Right around before before Jesus' time, the Hebrews, who spoke Greek, made a translation of the Old Testament in Greek. Just like you've got a translation of the Old Testament in English, back then, before Jesus uh, was born, the the Jews made a Old Testament in Greek, which was the same language that they ended up writing the New Testament in. So it's interesting to see the words that they use in the New Testament that they actually used for the words in the Old Testament. I hope I didn't lose you there. Um, and so, and, I, and it's called the the it's called the Septuagint. It was the Old Testament of Jesus' time, right? It's what would have been read in that area. And the word wrath in the Septuagint is the same Greek word that uh, Paul uses in Romans one. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. So when here's what I want you to understand. So when someone like Paul read Psalm 6 and he thought of wrath, he thought of the same word he wanted to declare to the Romans when he said God's wrath will be revealed to all unrighteousness. So we can understand how Paul looked or the Greek or the the Jews of Jesus time looked at uh, Psalm 6 and the wrath of God. Same word, and that word, that word is orge. Now, I've heard the likes of theologians, R.C. Sproul being one of them, help me with that Greek, and use your imagination. Hot, hot displeasure, orge. What does that sound like? Okay? Orgy. That's where our English word comes from. Same from that Greek word. Right? So what does that say about God's wrath? See, that's why hot displeasure is so good. Because God's wrath is his passion. Right? It, it, you, you know, you can make the connection. It is, it is on fire. It rages. Right? It's not, see, it's not just, God's going to be mad at you. No, no, no. It is hot, passionate anger and displeasure. That's what it is. And so, of course, David would say, discipline me, but not in your wrath. To help us understand what would happen if God did that, look at Deuteronomy 9. So Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy is a great book of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is basically Moses declaring to the Israel who is about to go onto the Promised Land. He's reminding them of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. 
And I think I said this last Sunday, or maybe the Sunday before. Why did God have to remind them or reiterate the covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai? Because all of their parents had died. God had killed them all because of their unfaithfulness, because of their unbelief. Go read Hebrews 3. He told that generation, you will not see the promised land. You will not enter my rest, Hebrews 3. And so we've got a new generation who were little babies at Mount Sinai. Now Moses is retelling not just the covenant that God made with Israel, but what happened around that time. So Deuteronomy 9, if uh, verse 13, my heading says, kind of gives us a little idea of what Moses is reminding them of or explaining to them. My heading says the golden calf. And so he's going to say, this was a bad thing that your parents did. This was a bad time. Of the, of the people of Israel. Mind you, as they were at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses was receiving the, co- the covenant and the law of God. Furthermore, verse 13, the Lord said to me, so Moses is speaking to Israel in this. He, he's telling them, it's basically it's story time with Moses, okay? I have seen this people, this is God speaking to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone. Okay, this is... God, Moses is telling the story of what God's saying to him while he's on the mountain, while the golden calf is being built and worshipped at the foot of the mountain. So this is God speaking to Moses, and Moses retelling God speaking to him to uh, the, new, the new Israel, the new children of Israel. So God says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name. From under heaven, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned Moses and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. Why? Because God was on the mountain. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And I looked, and behold, you, Israel. That's really interesting that he speaks to these people who were just probably children, if not even born yet. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourself a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. That is what you call a mediator. That is a... A foreshadowing of Christ. Look what he did. He saw the sin of the people in his, you want to call it anger? You want to call it mourning? Frustration? He threw down the two tablets. And what did he do? He laid prostrate. You know what that means? It means he laid on his face. He didn't just lay on his face, but I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of the sin that you had committed. I wonder if there's a connection to Jesus in the wilderness there. Jesus didn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. 
He says, because of the sin that you, Israel, had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Okay, there's one of the words. Now, here's, here's the verse we had to see. For I was afraid, Moses was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure. Both of those words from Psalm 6 in this one verse, Moses was scared of the Lord's anger and wrath, his hot displeasure, that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. So what would have been the outcome of anger and hot wrath from God? Their complete and utter destruction. So David's like, discipline me, rebuke me. I can't take your anger and your wrath. Because why? He knew it would destroy him. It would obliterate him. This is why we must not tread lightly when we think about this aspect of the Lord. We must not tread lightly here. So what does he cry out for? Go back to Psalm 6. He wants the Lord to correct him, to discipline him, not in his anger or in his wrath, but verse 2, in his what? His grace, his mercy. He calls out for the favor of God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Be gracious to me. And later he calls upon, he names the steadfast love of God, the, the hesed of God that we spoke of in Psalm 5 in verse 4. Have favor and compassion on me as you rebuke me and discipline me. And look what he, he says. He, he gives some characteristics of his condition. Now, was this physical, spiritual? Is a little bit of both. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. What does he mean? I'm weak and feeble. He says, heal me, mend me, cure me, O Lord. Why? My bones are are uh, troubled. They tremble. He says, my soul also is greatly troubled. Now you've got two things there. How bad... Here's why I said the Psalms are so wonderful for the church. Because there are times when you think, and you know, and there are times where you feel like your trouble is so deep within you. He says, my soul, my bones, that's what he's trying to communicate. That it's not just, it's not just out there and it's sort of problems, but it's come in and it's, 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 it's troubling him to the core. We don't know what David's going on. We don't know what's happening to him right now. We don't know if Absalom's chasing after him. We don't, we don't know the story, but what we do know is that he is troubled to the soul. And I guarantee you, if you were honest with yourself, you feel that sometimes. And you know that. And so what of he's this he's this troubled physically, spiritually, but yet he says, Discipline me. Correct me. Now that's somebody who trusts his father. Because most of the time, discipline isn't fun. 
correction isn't fun. And so he trusts the Lord, but he also knows not to play with fire. And that's the reason why we see verse 1. Now, I think if you look at verse 2 twice, verse 3 once, verse 4 once, I think David in his giftedness expresses to us whom we must trust. Because in two, I'm going to emphasize what I'm seeing as I read this. Be gracious to me, Yahweh, for I am languishing. Help me, Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, Yahweh, how long? Turn, Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, I think you could look at that in many ways, but what I see is, I see David crying out and and declaring his weakness and then proclaiming the, how do you say it? He's proclaiming the name of God. Do you know why he's proclaiming the name of God? Because the name of God is this, Yahweh, which means he exists. He is. He is self-existent. He depends on no one. There's no weakness in him. Yahweh, I am. I was. I is. Self-existent. There's nothing else in creation that is self-existent. God depends on no one. And David says, I depend on you completely. He's using, he's using poetry to let you know that your dependency is the one who is self-existent. The one who depends on no one. Yahweh. Comfort even in God's name. So, I think we keep saying this. The more you know about God, the more you can be comforted by Him. If you didn't, if you don't know that what His name, if you don't know what His name means, you have to understand when, when, um, when God sent Moses to to Egypt to bring Israel out of slavery, and is and Moses said, "How am I? How? Who are you? Who, who am I going to tell sending me?" And he says, I am. The self-existent one. Do you understand what I mean when I say self-existent? If you, you, you depend upon the oxygen in this room. You depend on the beating of your heart. Which is built in electri- a, a battery. You depend on the trees to let out oxygen. You depend on the food that grows and crawls on the ground. You are so far from self-existent. And that's the holiness of God, right? That's the otherness of God. We're we're so far from Him in our being. And that's why He declares Himself, His name is, I am. I am. And so when when you feel like you're not, what David's saying is, go to the I am. Go to the I am. 
Um, so if we get down, we, we see his trouble. We see it internally. We see it physically. We see it spiritually. And he's crying out to the only one who can help him when he says, Oh, Lord. Um, I, I don't want to assume that you guys all know this. When you see the, the word Lord in a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that isn't Lord like you bow down to a Lord. That is actually God's name that has been written here as L-O-R-D. The Hebrew is Y. The, the Hebrew is actually Y-W-H-W. Hebrew words don't have vowels. They're only consonants. And the name of God is literally Y-W-H-W. Am I saying those, those four letters right? right? And so his name is literally Yahweh. But when it's written in the Old Testament, they don't write it out Yahweh. The, the, the tradition that they, the, um, the writers did, did not want to take the Lord's name in vain. And so they would not even write down the name Yahweh. And so they put in its place Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, but it's okay for us to read it and declare his name, right? Uh, we understand that using his name in an honorable way is not taking it in vain. And so whenever you see that, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, just that's God's name, Yahweh. Okay. Uh, verse 4. We'll finish here with 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, you will get, uh, who will give you praise? Okay. Uh, we get a sense of something at the end of 3 and the beginning of 4. 3 ends with him declaring, Yahweh, O Lord, how long... And then, verse 4, turn, O Lord. So I think we can rightly understand that David is feeling a sense of distance from God. He's dealing with trouble, probably physically, spiritually, whatever it might be. And he feels, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to continue? How long am I going to be troubled, languishing? And then he says, turn, it come closer, come closer and deliver me, deliver my life. So there are times, this is again why the Psalms are so helpful for us, spiritually and emotionally, is because we feel times when the, that God is distant. And when you feel that, take David's... Uh, Take David's path and call the Lord closer. Call upon Him. Ask Him to come nearer to you. To deliver you from whatever situation, whatever languish or trouble you're in. Deliver my life, He, he, he asked God. He, he says, save me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me for your... That's, such, that's so counterintuitive to a human's prayer, to a person's prayer. Save me for your sake. 
Now that's, but not just, he's, he's saying, save me for your sake, or for your, for the sake of your steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word, hesed, that covenantal love and mercy of God that we talked about a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, that we receive because of the, the unconditional never or eternal love that God has with the Son, and then we've been we've been brought in to that, to that never changing love of God and mercy of God. He says, Save me for the sake of your mercy. Save me for the sake of your mercy. So what does Paul or sorry, what does David have in mind there? Not necessarily himself but the glory of God that is David finds salvation the ultimate end the ultimate uh, effect is the glory of God now you have to understand that is why God acts. That is why God moves. To glorify Himself. And we're gonna come back to that in just a second. But let me give you let me give you a few verses in the New Testament to help you think about that. Philippians verse one or chapter one. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Where's Paul? Where's Paul writing from when he writes Philippians? In, in jail. He's in prison for being a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is confident in the Lord that he will uh, continue in ministry. Uh, he says at the end of 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not, at, not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, look at here, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul said, He saves me. He's glorified. He kills me. He's glorified. And then he uses the well-known statement to help us understand that afterwards. For me to live as Christ and for me to die as gain. It's a win-win for Paul. Because Paul ultimately cared first and foremost, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And whatever happens after that. Just icing on the cake. Even if it means death for Paul. Why? Because to die is gain. So when we, yeah, when we live, when we look, when we wake up in the morning, our number one focus shouldn't be, God help me. It should be, God help me that I might glorify you. God, God help me that others might see your gloriousness. Uh, Sunday school and Second Thessalonians. I don't remember the language, but Brother Dan talked a little bit about um, the word doxa in the Greek. 
which we get the word doxology in the English, which is basically a study of the gloriousness of something. And do you, that's what Paul wants to do. That's what David wants to do. They want to be, they want to walk, they want to be a walking doxology of the glory of God. And you know that's how we finish our services in the morning. The song that we sing is called the doxology. I can't even think of how it goes. <laughs> but I've got it right here. Pray, I've got another song in my mind, and I'm going to tell you why in just a second. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. All, who is in, who's in mind here? Him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Do you know who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is? Yahweh. Who said it? Good job. Yahweh, the Lord. That's a doxology. They're all throughout the scriptures. Uh, I'm going to show you one. First uh, Timothy. Go to First Timothy. See, that's what David wants. David wants to be saved for the sake of displaying the glory of God. First Timothy, chapter one. good to remember who Paul was before he was an apostle. And he tells us here, I think we read this this morning. We didn't go far, we didn't go as far as I want to go though. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent of who? The Lord Jesus Christ and his church. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost. The foremost what? Sinner. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what does Paul didn't say? Yay, I'm going to heaven. He says, no, the glory and perfect patience of Jesus Christ is displayed when people look at me who persecuted Christians. And now he has saved me. And then verse 17, he breaks into what we call doxology. A study of the praise and the glory of God to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's what David wanted. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Let your hesed, your mercy be made known as it is seen, worked and through my salvation and my deliverance. Now, I we've, we've sang that doxology for almost two years, well, over two years now. This year I want to introduce a new doxology. Uh, it's called the Gloria Patri, which is Latin. We're not going to sing Latin. 
its its roots go back to the fourth century, and, and we're not going to sing it today. But I want to, if I can, I had it. I thought I had it written down, but I didn't write it down. See if I can give it to you from memory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning. How was it in the beginning? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it now and ever shall be. What shall what shall be? The Father, the Son, Yahweh, the I Am. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it now and ever shall be. World without end. What world? This world? No. His kingdom. World without end. Amen. What a doxology. What a praise of the gloriousness of the great I am. Right? So I hope that we get to learn that over the the next couple weeks or months or however the Lord allows. So save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. And finally, he says in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? This is a tough one. Uh, Sheol, we don't we don't want to instantly think of Sheol as torment or hell. Sheol is mostly usually spoke of about life after death, uh, the lack of existence in the physical sense, and he says, okay, David's David's life is probably at stake. At this point, as he's writing this psalm, okay, he's possibly could die. And he says, deliver me, save me, so that I might continue to live, and then what? And give you praise as long as I'm alive. Okay, so again, the idea is, he goes, if I die, Lord, if I die, I can't declare to the world your glory. So save me. Deliver me, and what will I do? I will declare your glory, and I will give you praise. Do you know what happened when God told Moses, you better step back, I'm going to wipe out those people. You know what Moses said? You have to go back and look at the Exchange between God and Moses. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. And then Moses requests to the Lord, prays to the Lord, mediates on behalf of Israel and says, Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against the people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self 
and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heavens and the, all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster of wiping out Israel that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Why did he do it? What did Moses remind him of? The glory of his name. Because what was, what was at stake? His word. His promise. And if he would not keep his promise, then Egypt would look and laugh at Yahweh. And they would, they would say, that was no God at all. And we know the same thing happens, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, with the new covenant. As Ezekiel prophesies of the work of God through the Spirit that would take place in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, this is how he begins that statement. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will, vindic and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh. This is the only way to live, people. The only way to follow Christ, the only way to be a Christian, is to not to say, Lord, I save me, Lord, I need this, Lord, help me, Lord, thank you, Lord. No, it's, Lord, I, I need you for the sake that I might honor your name. That you might be glorified in my heart. You might be glorified in my home. Let's pray.